You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR is broadcasting from the lands of the Kulin Nations, true owners, custodians, and caretakers of the land from which we broadcast. And we pay our respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded and the treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning, Alice. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm very good. And uh, it's the 28th of October. It's my dad's birthday. Oh, it's what? I just remembered that. <laughs> it's my dad's birthday. Okay, today, this very day. This very day. So there'll be a phone call later. I think, yeah, I yeah. think so. Or at least. Luckily, they're 11 hours behind, so I've so always yeah, got time. Gives always us a bit of an edge on things. Exactly. Yeah. And the weather, after a kind of crazy weekend, right? It just, one moment it was sunny when the sun came out, and then raining and windy and freezing. Yeah. It's just um, crazy. Anyway, I think it's going to warm up uh, the rest of the week, so that's good. Not too bad out there now. Mm, Did yeah. you notice the balloons in the air when you were driving in? Oh, the hot air balloons? Yeah. No, but I have seen them before in the morning. Yeah, there were five. I hadn't seen so many. Like, all, like oh, felt wow. like I was driving down Smith Street out of this arc of uh, hot air balloons. It was kind That's of neat. awesome. Do you know where they go off from? I don't know anything about them. No, I just I kind know. of um, feel it's a bit magical seeing them. Yeah. Yeah, that, but, uh, you know, and, but there was one you kept seeing a bit of fire or something. It looked like fire. That was a bit worrying. I mean, not that it was on fire, but just this well, we glow. If it wasn't on fire, no, no, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure it wasn't. <laughs> it would have been coming down. If yeah. Have you ever been in a hot air balloon? No, have you? No, no, I haven't. I, been. There's something I just I'm so uncomfortable with the idea of oh, it. It just yeah. seems like really, I don't know, volatile. Yes, well, that's probably the excitement of it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> probably. <laughs> yeah, so the big thanks to Beyond Zero Emissions for another great show. Always love that show. Mm-hmm. And um, how was your weekend? Just wondering. It was relatively relaxed. I think I'm coming down with something. Oh. I have, yeah, I had a sneezing, a bit of a sneezing fit before um, oh. coming in the studio. So, I don't know. And mm. I feel like yesterday was really chilled, and then yeah, it was it was fun. Yeah. But I'm looking for a new house at the moment, so that's Ooh, taking up a lot of my that's time and energy. Always mm. really hard work. Yeah, the landlords yeah. kicked us out. So no. yeah. are they selling, or have you just been behaving badly, Alice? <laughs> I suspect the latter somehow. <laughs> exactly that. No, yeah. um, they are gonna renovate it all and sell it on. Okay. So that's their plan. That's but. always a challenge with renting. You never know when the when the carpet's gonna be pulled. Out from under, yeah, I think. yeah. yeah and I don't know too much about it, but I spoke to um, somebody who was saying that they haven't really changed 
the rent in laws since like the 50s in Melbourne and it's very heavily in favour of the landlord rather than the tenant. So yeah, I, I think there's been moves to change that but you know what I think that's a story and we should follow up with a personal experience <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, at the heart of Alice, it. Yes. At the heart of it for sure. And um, your weekend. Yeah, well, there were, you know, I didn't go to it, but the community um, broadcasting conference was on here in Melbourne, and I heard really great things about it, and certainly a few of our C- 3CR people were out there and mm. um, taking it all in. But one of my friends was visiting, so I got to catch up with her twice, which felt really special to, to be seeing, seeing her and also getting her take on the conference. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And she's in community radio as well. Yes, of course. She was my, of course. My, of course. That's why I know, but she was, she's my, was my trainer, one of my trainers at Radio Adelaide. So, you know, you always really value those people in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, she's managing people and programs there now, Nikki Marcel. And, um, yeah, doing a great job keeping everything together because there's been a lot of challenges for them. Mm-hmm. Long story. Won't go <laughs> We're going to now. We won't have time. An hour and a half is not long enough. No, Monday breakfast long is not enough. long enough. For that but, story. Uh, but probably worth saying that, like 3CR, it's one of the first community radio stations, and I think the first with an education license. So um, oh. yeah, so going over well, you know, over, getting well over forty years now. So wow. um, yeah, so it's um, yeah, it's been a bit of an institution. So what's coming up on the show this morning, Alison? Well, we're hoping to speak at 8.15 with Julian Merrick. Yes. And that will be about his latest production that he's directed called Control. So we're hoping we're going to speak to him um, at 8.15. And then at 8 o'clock... Yeah, we have uh, Daniel James coming in. Daniel's a writer, community radio broadcaster also... Um, a blogger, lots of things that he does, yeah. But he's um, a Yorta Yorta man who's been really concerned about New Start and youth allowance in remote Aboriginal communities. Mm-hmm. So he's going to come in and talk to us about that. And then Dennis Muller will be coming, a friend of our program. He's been on before, and he's looking at um, what's been happening around all security and um, the situation of journalists and whistleblowers and the blackout last Monday of all the um, newspapers in Australia uh, as a protest in the beginning of a, an action, a campaign. Yeah, well, we'll, Dennis will tell us more. <laughs> I, won't go, I won't go into it more than that, but yeah. uh, it's always great to mm. speak with Dennis. Yeah. And at 7.30, we have Mev Taylor, who is going to be speaking to us about the Slutwalk fundraiser that happened over the weekend. Oh, wow. And great. also the upcoming Slutwalk in November. So wow. we're going to be speaking with Mev about that today. That's terrific. Yeah, I'm really excited to speak to her about that. Yeah. And uh, at 7.15, we're going to be crossing over to the demonstrations against the IMARC conference. So we'll be, there'll be more on that later. Yeah, just and so down at the convention center, the, there are protesters. It's a big mining conference, mm-hmm. and um, they they boast that they get about seven thousand participants. So they're going to get a few more, <laughs> <laughs> unexpected perhaps. Our listeners are very responsive. I feel like absolutely, and we've had a lot of feedback where we've spoken to people, and our three cell listeners have got in touch after, and it's been amazing. It's wonderful, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's a great station, and it's a great service that's mm. provided, and it's a really active 
community. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think they're wonderful. But there's, there's one thing I just want to mention that's coming up this week for people who may not have heard about it. Um, it's an interactive forum on First Nations hip-hop. How does that sound? That sounds incredible. Doesn't that sound amazing? It's on at the Arts Center on this Thursday, October 31st, from 2 till 5 in the afternoon. And what's happening is you're going to get to hear people, First Nations performers, uh, uh, hip-hop artists singing, performing, and talking about their lives and their work in hip-hop. So it's going to be some of the, like, uh, one of the groups that's going to be there will be uh, Dreaming Now, like Neil Morris, Philly, Monkamuk and uh, Oitha, who's you know we're very fond of. Oh, we yeah, <laughs> we, we play love Sister Oitha. Girl a lot. Mm-hmm. Sister Girl, so nice. Now we, the Carolyn Briggs is going to welcome people uh, to country, and then we're going to hear firsthand from the artists about hip hop's role in family, culture, healing, and sovereignty. Wow, that sounds yeah. incredible. It sounds yeah, it is. I'm going for oh. sure. I've got yeah, I've got ten dollars. Ten dollars. Ten dollars. Yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah. for three hours of fabulous entertainment. I think it's amazing. So I'm going to three be three hours along. for ten dollars, and you see all of those artists. That's incredible. That's right. And and I think more. I, I although I have heard Briggs won't be there himself mm. because he's overseas. Otherwise he would be there. But of course he's well known because of his record label Bad Apples. But mm-hmm. you know, just amazing. And so it's um, very exciting to me that I'll get to see Oitha firsthand. And I just want to give a bit of background to who they are. It's a hip-hop band, obviously, and uh, they're made up of three strong Indigenous women. So we we get um, uh, Lady Lash, who we played last week, Hershey Bars, Miss Hood and Dizzy Day, and Oitha, O-E-T-H-A means Our Earth, the Heart Acknowledges. That's beautiful. Isn't that wonderful? Mm. So as a group of indigenous women in uh, what's often a male-dominated uh, musical genre, mm-hmm. they intend to make powerful music, which they do, which we've heard already, and there's more. It's got meaning, message, and substance, a little bit from their promo, and uh, connects with real people going through real-life situations. And I love this quote, healing the world one song at a time. So we're going to hear Weetha's new song, Ride, I confess 
migrations straight up unlimited destinations looking real deadly for a special occasion exclusive sister girl hip-hop invasion hands on the wheel and the wind in my head kicking with my girls cause we just don't care we're beautiful we're black and we about to get loud so turn up the music and let's roll out get my titties in the back and we headed to the south showing you all what a black woman is about we got the qld
The first track that you heard was Aweetha and Cruising, and the second track was Teresa Duffy Richards with By and By. And Teresa Duffy Richards is from New South Wales and spent some time in Melbourne as well, so she's pretty local now. Yeah, um, so, yeah. beautiful. Both songs are made. Yeah, I mean, very different kind of moods. Very different moods. Yeah. yeah so I hope I seamlessly put one through to the other. Oh, I, I, th- like I thought I, that was seamless. That I was thought seamless. it was pretty seamless. <laughs> seamless. But I, I really, the, the cruising one, I mean, it's great to watch the, the video that goes with it as well because it's Ooh. these amazing women driving the car, wind in their hair, and just, uh, you know, challenging the world. Oh, and I love that. Yeah, you would. I just know you would. It's just such <laughs> a, besides the music, <laughs> the, the video is enough. The visuals are amazing. Now, last week we spoke to um, Peter Miller from Deakin University, who's been concerned about the very quick, uh, the undue haste with which parliamentarians kind of move from being in parliament, or sometimes it's the advisors, sometimes it's public servants even, move out. And then suddenly they take up positions either lobbying or working for multinational companies that are promoting unhealthy food or alcohol or gambling. And we we ended up that um, conversation just talking about, you know, how long is it between when um, someone leaves parliament, for example, parliamentary leaves, and when they are permitted to actually take up a position that's related to the post or the work they were doing in Parliament. Mm. So we're just going to revisit that interview because I think it's quite an important issue. And uh, then we're going to follow that by an interview we did with Rex Patrick about uh, Christopher Pine taking up a position, uh, a former defence minister taking up a position with a, a supplier of defence industry materials. So, But let's start with Peter Miller. Well, at the moment, the politicians have a voluntary guideline only for ministers. So, you know, ministers are probably the least susceptible in a lot of the real potential for corruption areas where if you've got a backbencher who's looking at being voted out, they're going to be unemployed soon, voting for a bit of legislation that, let's say, stops alcohol price being increased could be very lucrative for them. Your question about what can be done and the issue of timing are, are the Two sides of the same coin. But just before we go to that, yep. so what happens in other liberal democracies? How long does the person have to be out of parliament before they can take up such a position? 
As you can imagine, it varies a lot. The best thought-through model is Canada, where it's five years. It says you can't hold a position in the private realm for five years that was related to your specific area of influence. And what is it in Australia again? Well, it could be 18 months. That's what the ministerial guidelines say. But as we've seen in three very recent examples, it's complete rubbish and it's not applied whatsoever. Yes. Uh, so, that, so that's rather embarrassing. I mean, 18 months to start with doesn't compare with five years in any way. And that no. even the 18 months isn't observed. Well, sometimes it's not even been 24 hours since these people have quit from one job to be appointed to a million-dollar job in the same area with the, some of the people they were just sitting down at the table with representing our country. And there's no penalties. There's absolutely no penalties. Whereas in Canada and even in the US, even Donald Trump put in place a five-year moratorium on being employed in an area where you have a conflict of interest. And there are real penalties, even potentially jail time, if you abuse it. Because it's ultimately a breach of the public trust. You're breaching your responsibilities for the community you serve. So what does need to happen? There's a number of things. Obviously, we need to put in place proper guidelines around having something like a five-year or four-year in Australian logic would be sensible. So five years is one political term in Canada plus one year so that there's very little chance of any sort of ongoing corruption. So a five-year moratorium on being employed in that area and having a watchdog, a corruption commission that monitors and enforces these laws and that we have strict penalties around it to say it's not okay for you to go and do this. It will wipe it out pretty quickly. It's a key part of what we've got to do to try to ensure that uh, our public interest is being served by these people. And what, what can people who are listening do? Is there something the community can do? Absolutely. Demand accountability from your politicians. Ask them who they're being funded by and to declare these things. Push harder for transparency and accountability. In Queensland, they've put in place real-time online disclosure of all gifts. Yes. Or any amount. And people can go and demand that from their politicians. Yes. Because so many of the problems we're facing in society today come, they stem from this basic undermining of our democracy by corporate interests. You conclude your paper by saying that government's continued failure to adequately regulate the behaviour of former politicians, political staffers and public servants isn't just an issue for public health policy. It also represents a fundamental corruption of our democracy. And I think that's the point you've just made. Yes, I think so. <laughs> I think it's increasingly clear to many people that we need to see independent monitoring strong rules and a real wake-up call for our politicians to do their jobs seriously and independently. Seriously and independently and a wake-up call. So this was last week, uh, speaking with Peter Miller from Deakin. And uh, it's and I, I found it interesting, Alice, he used the word corruption mm. because one does get the feeling of a kind of... Um, a state which allows this kind of 
thing to go on, and we so often talk about oh countries that are corrupt, things like that. So this is a, a re- is that a fair word, I guess, or not? But uh, it's certainly one to think about yeah. in relation to what's going on here. But just a few months ago, we did another. A show or another interview around the same sort of thing when Christopher Pine moved out of, um, you know, Parliament and he was, um, has been a Minister for Defence and Defence Industries during his time in Parliament and very rapidly signed up with EY, Ernst & Young, but now called EY, which were wanting to expand into the area of defence. So at that time, we spoke to Senator Rex Patrick, who was quite concerned. So we've now talked about what's going on around the health in, like, and trying to prevent health issues. Now we go to defense, and we have a similar story. Mr. Pine, as you suggested, was the defense minister. He was also the leader of the government in the House and a member of cabinet. He has knowledge of the broadest affairs of government and the intimate details of every significant matter in respect of the defence portfolio. He will have been briefed by defence, he will have been briefed by companies, he will have been briefed on plans that are not in the public domain. I'm of the view that Mr Pine wouldn't pass on any sensitive information. I know him well, but he can't unknow what he knows when he is forming up advice to give to EY. Now, that will raise probity issues with other companies who will be rightfully concerned about the advantage EY now has. Australia's been buying big in the defence industry, and of course there are debates about that as well. But this is a time when any firm is set to make quite a bit of money from Australia. There are plenty of opportunities for EY in this market. They have a right to tender for work uh, in that space. However, the concern will be that they have someone on board their staff who is privy to information that otherwise they wouldn't have and indeed other competing companies wouldn't have. Is this like insider trading? In some sense, yes, it is. The problem here is one that's encountered in in industry as well. Normally, if you're the CEO of a company or a very senior person inside a company, when you leave the company, they have a mandatory gardening leave period is is what it's often called. And the reason for that gardening leave, so the, the, the idea is you just go off and prune your garden, um, I like that uh, well, idea. Yeah, while, whilst time passes, so the, the information that you have about that company becomes dated. And that's the same problem we have here. It's dealt with by something called the Statement of Ministerial Standards, which is the PM's guidelines to ministers on their conduct. And it extends to ministers who have left the government. What kinds of things that do former uh, members of parliament or ministers have to be aware of? Well, I can just simply read from the standard. Ministers are required to undertake that for an 18-month period after ceasing to be a minister, they will not lobby, advocate or have business meetings with members of the government, parliament, public service or defence force on any matters on which they had official dealings as minister in their last 18 months in office. In that respect, former Minister Pine probably won't contact people. It's the next criteria which comes of concern, and that's where it says ministers are also required to undertake that on leaving office they will not take personal advantage of information to which they have had access as a minister where that information 
information is not generally available to the public. Oh That's the problem in this particular instance. It is. How common is this sort of thing? Do people actually observe that 18-month guideline? This has happened before, and this will continue to go on until a Prime Minister who sets those standards enforces the standards. This is now a test for the Prime Minister. It's a test of his conviction towards his own statement of ministerial standards. What's happened with Mr Pine is inappropriate. The PM must now call Mr Pine, and if he gets nowhere, he should direct Defence and other government agencies to cease using uh, or awarding any contracts to EY until the 18-month time period specified in the ministerial standards has expired. How likely is Scott Morrison to do this? This comes down to his integrity and his strong leadership. Do other countries have these same kind of ministerial requirements? I know for certain that the United States has a similar set of arrangements. It's typically designed to make sure that people have confidence in government. We can't have a situation where companies are going into a minister's office to brief the minister on their commercially sensitive bids, on their intellectual property, and then the minister moves on to another company where they can take advantage of that. that I mean, That's that just not sense. proper. You know, that, that makes absolute sense. But I do understand there's no real legal power to enforce those ministerial standards. Well, that goes to another issue, and that is that the Morrison government has not committed to an independent commission against corruption. You might recall that uh, in this parliament, Cathy McGowan, independent member for Indi, put a bill to the parliament which proposed an independent commission against corruption. That bill, had it been passed, would have created a commission that would have had jurisdiction to deal with this matter, breaches of, of the statement of ministerial standards. And what's happening to that bill? Well, that bill will expire when this parliament expires in a few days. It will be a matter of whether or not that's reintroduced. The so government is introducing its own bill in relation to uh, anti-corruption. However, that bill is extremely weak and quite disappointing. Didn't Christopher Pine refer to himself as the fixer when he was in Parliament? And now we have the Minister for Defence Industry, Melissa Price, describing herself as the deliverer. I'm curious about what she's going to deliver, but I'm wondering if she's going to team up with Christopher Pine in that delivery. I can't go to what may happen in that uh, area. There's no question that in 18 months' time, Christopher Pine, who's very well connected, can contact someone like Melissa Price, but he can also now sit in his office and say to people at EY, without revealing anything uh, sensitive that he knows, my suggestion is that you go and talk to Melissa Price about this particular matter, and he can do so knowing that there's some specific timing that would give EY advantage, or that there is work that is suitable for EY that it would be useful bringing to the attention of the Defence Industry Minister. And that's the problem here. And I just want to conclude by saying that I don't begrudge Mr Pine, but in my view, his decision here is an exercise of poor judgment and is inappropriate. 
And uh, as far as I know, really not much has been done about this sort of thing. So now we've had two examples and uh, really concerning. So that was Senator Rex Patrick. He's the senator for South Australia with the Centre Alliance Party. And it will be interesting to see if eventually something does change and the government, yeah. Scott Morrison, does do something about it. Yeah, interesting to keep our eye on that one. Yeah, for mm. sure. So we're now going to be speaking with Mev Taylor, who is an activist and part of the Slut Walk fundraiser. Um, so we're going to be speaking to her just in a few seconds. I think we're going to go to some music for the moment and we'll be back. And as I said just before, we're going to be speaking to Mev Taylor, um, who is a fundraiser um, with Slot Walk. And they had a fundraiser over the weekend that we're going to have a quick chat about. And we're going to also learn a little bit more about Slot Walk in itself. So, Mev, thanks so much for joining us today. It's nice to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. Um, so can you first just chat to us a little bit about um, what you do with Slut Walk and also a bit more about Slut Walk as a um, movement in itself? Yeah, so I've been organising, I've been on the organising committee for Slut Walk for the last two years after having participated for a few years before that. And basically Slut Walk was born in 2011 when a Canadian police officer in Toronto told a rape survivor that if she didn't dress like such a slut, she would not have been raped. And then mm. in response to that statement, um, the first slut walk was held and quickly spread across the globe, basically, and now it's a global movement to mm. end victim-blaming and slut-shaming, especially for survivors of uh, assault and abuse. Mm. And the word slut is, is a divisive word. Um, and I think one of the missions for Slut Walk is to reclaim and redefine that word. Um, yeah, definitely. It is very controversial, but we're trying to reclaim that and our sexuality. Yeah. And, and has, do you think that's been successful since 2011 when it first started? I think it has been very successful. I personally first heard about Slut Walk in 2012 and I was hesitant to get involved because of that as well. And now I think there's a lot more knowledge and awareness about what the actual message is. Like, it's a controversial name, but not a controversial, controversial message. Mm. And, and you had the fundraiser over the weekend. That was on Saturday, right? Yes. How did it go? It went really well, yeah. We had some amazing performers. It was a mixture of burlesque, drag, spoken word and some music wow. and we had a really good turnout and everybody felt really welcomed and had a really great time and we raised enough money to put out on our march so it was great oh that's great and yeah i was wondering because i think when you attend walks or when you attend marches you don't often think about the costs that come with something like that so with yeah. the, with the money that you've raised from the fundraiser where does that go on the um, within the slut walk campaign yeah, so basically we need to make sure that we have all of the supplies that we need for marshals. We need to make sure that we can pay for the venues for training and all of the uh, high-vis vests and then also the AV equipment 
and technicians. And then most importantly, also, we have a charity partner every year. And so anything that's left over from those March costs will go to our charity partner, which this year is flat out. Mm. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I just don't ever think about it. I mean, that's something for me. Um, but also, why was it important to do it over the, that Halloween weekend? And as you've mentioned, the, the event was called Slutterween, which I love, by the way. That's incredible. Yeah, so um, a lot of people know that there's a bit of a culture and trend of people making fun of women who dress up slutty mm-hmm. at, for Halloween. And basically, we wanted to use that to our advantage and kind of use it as a way to empower people and to empower ourselves. And we thought up the idea last year. And so we did a slutterwing last year, and this is our second year running. And it just it went really well, so we thought we would keep doing it. I love that. Yeah, it sounds absolutely amazing. And it is interesting, as Alice said, you know, we often... Oh, sorry, I'm that's Judith here. Yeah, um, we often don't think of actually the cost of doing a demonstration and the kind of the equipment you need and the, the fun. You know, you just can't walk. I mean, you can, but it's better if you've got the, the kind of equipment you need. Mm. So it's fantastic. And uh, how many people are you expecting to go on the walk or do you have any sense of that? Well, we've had thousands each year, so we are expecting a few thousand. We're not sure exactly what the turnout's going to be, but it has been getting bigger and bigger each year, so yeah. we're hoping it will be good. Terrific. And where are you going to walk? Like, where is that walk? Yeah, so we start the rally at the State Library of Victoria, just outside the front steps, and we'll have some speakers, and it starts at about one, and we'll march to Federation Square. And then that's where we end the march. Awesome. And when is when is the march? It's on the 16th of November this year, so that's a Saturday. And uh, when people come to the march, do people tend to dress up for that, or um, there's a whole range of different uh, yeah ways that people attend. There are a lot of people that will come in as little clothing as possible because that's what they want to do and that's how they empower themselves. But we all know that. People are empowered by different things. Some people are empowered by nudity and some people are empowered by just coming and sh- and some people have signs that say, this is what I was wearing when I was assaulted and it will just be something very normal mm. or just pyjamas or, you know, jeans, something like that. So basically mm. it's like whatever people feel comfortable in and, and whatever shows who they are is what they wear. That's, that's very moving, the hearing that people come with, with a sign and... This is what I was yeah. wearing when I when I was assaulted. Yeah, uh, is that? Do you see many people doing that? Yeah, we we do have a lot of people. Like, there generally a lot of people will come with signs that reflect their personal experiences. Mm. So we do have like a really um, big range of people and what they're trying to say about how they have been hurt by victim blaming and the mm. the kind of abuse that has happened to them. And is it mostly women who come? Are men invited? Sorry, what was that? Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> I wasn't speaking loudly enough. Um, so uh, is it mostly women who come, or are men able to come or invited, or is it something that's primarily a march for women? Yeah, there are mostly women that are attending, but we also do see a lot of men, and men are also welcome to come. We also want to acknowledge that men are victims of abuse as well 
and there are women as well that have perpetrated abuse and we want to make sure that the space is inclusive to everybody and make sure that everybody feels like they're safe and not blamed for anything that's happened to them. Mm. Yeah, I think it's yeah so important. And, I, and just to touch on the what people wear to the event as well, it just goes straight back to that initial message in 2011 that that police officer brought and um, said to that victim or that survivor sorry um so yeah i think it's it's a really strong message to be wearing any anything yeah it touches my heart like there's no dress code no (laughs) No. (laughs) it touches my heart that it started in toronto because that's where i'm from well not from from canada so uh it's great to see that that's spread you know Mm. and and how ideas then grow and move across countries even Mm. yeah and if people couldn't come to the fundraiser, um, but they'd like to come along to the march and they'd also like to help and contribute to the costs, how can how can listeners find out a bit more about where to do that or how to do that? Yeah, so the best way probably to find out more about Slut Walk and the things like um, getting involved as a marshal, volunteering at the march and knowing about banner workshops and other things would be to like the Slut Walk Melbourne Facebook page and find our Slut Walk Melbourne 2019 event and see what we've got up there. Awesome. So that's November the 16th, and it starts at yeah. 1 o'clock, right? Yeah. Perfect. That's going in my diary immediately. Um, that's great. Thank you so much, Mev, for joining us today on the show and chatting to us about that. It's been really, really interesting, so thank you. And I'm so glad that your fundraiser went well on Saturday. Thank you, and thank you so much for having us. No worries. It's a pleasure. Have a great Monday. Yeah, you too. So that was Mev Taylor, and we were talking about Slutterween, the yes. fundraiser that they um, that Slut Walk had on Saturday yep. to raise some costs um, or to raise some money so that they can afford to put on the size of a march that they want. Um, and yeah, we're going to take a quick break now, and we'll be back. Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counselling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between queer Space, Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1-800-542-847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000. A 3CR supporter. Pen. Through the seasons and sacred plants 
hit you with swords for a minute, I'll spin. Cop the death of town to the clay pin. Chop weeks and mountains up, pop to no tin. Think about beaches, no equivalent. Swept with the top, keep the attend. Warriors, cold soul, poison and sin. Out this wisdom, truth never by chance. Close with the leaks and trends in the dead. Sending in love across every experience. Messy sublime, it's in the hands. Reverse your beauty from all that it spins. Infusing the magic, but just get rent. Ready your mind, not a cool then. No more body, call this event. Cool, cool, yelling, deep, bring it in. Don't you pipe me to know, but again. land and he's one of the groups that'll be on um, this Thursday afternoon at the um, at the Arts Centre for the event Tell It Like It Is so yeah amazing amazing and now we're going to be speaking with Dennis Muller and last Monday we saw the front page of the Australian newspapers blacked out as a part of a campaign by the Australia's Right to Know Coalition, protesting moves by the Australian federal government to penalise whistleblowing and, in some cases, to criminalise journalism. So Dr Dennis Muller is from the Centre of Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, and he's described the blackout as a highly significant event in Australian political and media history. And he joins us on the line now to explain why. So welcome back to Monday Breakfast, Dennis. Thank you, Judith. And a great to have you with us this morning. And I'm interested in knowing why you describe the blackout uh, as a highly significant event in Australian political and media history. Well, there are two reasons, really. The first is that it's very unusual for the media companies to join together on anything. They're mostly at daggers drawn. 
And so to find them involving themselves in this extraordinarily concerted and coordinated campaign in which they've all of them uh, used identical um, design methods to black out their front pages and stamp them with this red secret stamp uh, is really quite unprecedented. Um, so that's one reason. The second reason is that even though the public don't really re realise this, for very many decades, the big newspaper companies in particular, and to some extent the ABC, cooperated with the government on matters of national security to a quite significant degree. There was a, a voluntary system of self-censorship. It was, went under the name of D-notices, D for defence. And these D-notices identified certain topics that the media voluntarily agreed they wouldn't write about things like the testing of nuclear bombs at Maralinga in South Australia. Um, the, Dennis, that, that's the... incredible when mm. you think about the public's right to know. Yes, the media agreed not to not to report on that. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and and so uh, even when I was a journalist, um, the, this system survived from about 1952 to about 1982. So to have a break with the government. Uh, of this magnitude, so that basically the the newspapers are taking the government on very publicly over this right to know is the second reason why I say this is um, highly significant in in political and media history. I just want to go back for a moment. So that period when when the the D notices were in place, what period of time are we talking about? You said thirty years. Yeah, it was from right at the sort of start of the Cold War. So. 1952, the system started. Okay. It was borrowed from England. It had been going in England since the First World War. Right. So from but it about in around Australia in 1952. Yeah, and so from around 1982, like over that 30-year period, something changed. Uh, around 1982, something changed, and the media decided this wasn't okay. We must be reporting on these things. Well, some parts of the media did, most particularly the Fairfax newspapers. I see. Uh, the, back in those days, the Fairfax Company started up a um, kind of high-quality tabloid called the National Times. I remember it, it well. Anymore, but it, um, uh, its speciality was breaking big government stories. And they had a reporter called Brian Tui. In fact, he became the editor of it. And Tui had tremendous contacts in the defense and intelligence services. And he, he got l hundreds of leaks. And the National Times became a sort of a specialist in telling the public what our security services and our Defence Department were really up to. And that, that, was the, um, that was the point at which the rest of us in the media, I was on the Sydney Morning Herald at the time, uh, decided that, look, we really shouldn't be colluding with the government like this. Um, we, we should be doing what the National Times is doing if we can. We should be telling the, 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 country, the, uh, the people what's, what's going on. And at the same time, you had the, uh, the um, enactment of the first freedom of information laws at the Commonwealth and Victorian levels. And so um, there was a shift. There was a, a, a paradigm shift, really, but on both sides. Uh, the government realizing that freedom of information was was something that, uh, that they should enact, and at the same time this recognition by the media that colluding with the government to cover stuff up really wasn't on. So there was a, 
a major shift in attitudes going on at that time. Oh, look, and, and so that shift has continued. And then my, I have the sense from your paper that around 9-11, um, the government kind of moved in with a lot more uh, restrictions on, on the media. Yes, and of course it was all done uh, under the name of national security, even though uh, the laws, while they apply to national security, apply to a lot of other things as well, including, in some cases, missing persons and protection of government revenue. Well, they haven't much to do with, with national security. So, from yes, from 9-11, the, um, the atmosphere changed again. Of course, uh, there was a great deal of heightened fear about the threat of terrorism. So you can understand why it was justified that the national security laws should be reviewed. But since then... Successive Australian governments have passed 82 now, 82 pieces of security of um, legislation under the sort of national security banner, uh, and we now have reached the point where Australia has by far the most repressive uh, national security laws in the Western world. Yes. And, and to go along with that, we are the only ones of the big. Anglophone democracies, the US, the UK, Canada, New Zealand and ourselves, we're the only one without any uh, formal protection for the free press. So we've got it coming and going in Australia. Yes, and I guess some of that has now culminated in the raids by the Australian Federal Police on the Sydney offices of the ABC and the home of News Corps journalist Annika Smathers. And that's resulted in uh, um, two inquiries that are going on right now by the government. Yes, the, the first inquiry is being conducted by the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. Now, they're a strange beast to be running uh, an inquiry into press freedom because they're the committee who have uh, waived all these laws through in the first place, so uh, that was an odd choice. Uh, however, um, it, it, lots of people have appeared before it, including all the media companies, and the other one is being conducted by the Senate Committee on Environment and Communications. Uh, so we've had both these inquiries running. Do you and think we'll... the first one, Sorry, uh, okay. which is the more high-profile high of the two, mm -hmm. is due to report towards the end of next month, towards the end of November, and the other one in March next year, so uh, about five months' time. Yes. And do you think we'll see any changes as a result of these inquiries? I'd be very surprised if we see anything more than cosmetic changes. What we've seen, particularly at the, at the Joint Committee inquiry, has been um, tremendously fierce blowback from the senior public servants and from the security services. Uh, Mike Pizzullo, the head of the Home Affairs Department, which runs the Federal Police, for instance, uh, he says that he wants uh, whistleblowers put in jail. Well... That's a pretty uncompromising position it's, it's to be in. It's pretty disturbing. Well, it is, particularly when in countries like the United States, they have a, an annual whistleblower celebration day and there are kind of awards given to whistleblowers. We should have one, you know. We, we should, should have one. We should just set one up. <laughs> well, well, I suppose we could. We could. Um, the problem is that um, in Australia, uh, if you identify a whistleblower, uh, you are setting that person up for a life of misery. Oh, yes. Um, lots yeah. of whistleblowers finish up in prison in Australia or their careers are wrecked, their marriages are ruined, 
um, their health is ruined. The, a lot of whistleblowers in Australia pay a tremendous price oh, for this is so sad. The there was a story um, in the age a few weeks ago about the guy who blew the whistle on the Commonwealth Bank. Yes. And the impact on his family relationships, his career, his mental health were very dire. So we're a long way from celebrating yes. whistleblowers because we can't say who they are. Yeah, I know. And uh, I suppose when I said that, I wasn't expecting that real whistleblowers would appear. It would be more, um, you know, a kind of statement. But just coming back, Dennis Muller, you're an experienced journalist and a person who writes on media ethics. How do you feel when you see media freedoms attacked in this way? Oh, I'm, I'm alarmed because, I mean, I, I, I know... Uh, just what sort of society we would have if we didn't have a free press. Because not just governments, but everyone in power would be much freer to abuse that, that, that power and the public would know nothing about it. And the other thing is, of course, you can't really run a democracy properly unless yes. the people who are the voters uh, are properly informed of what about what governments and their bureaucrats are doing. So we would have a, an extremely weakened democracy just at a time when uh, we've got a crisis in trust in our institutions that would only make that crisis worse. Yes, indeed. So it's something that we all need to be paying attention to, that's for sure. And uh, since that's coming up, the, you know, the result of that first inquiry, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security is coming up uh, later in November. It'll be something to, really interesting to see what comes out of that. So, sure will. Yeah, so we'll probably be calling you again then, Dennis, to, well, <laughs> to get your I'll take. certainly be keeping my eye peeled for... Um, for what comes out of that report, and I hope I'm wrong. I, I hope that that they recommend a a sweeping reform of those national security laws and the defamation laws and the whistleblower laws and the metadata laws. I mean, there's just a whole web of them, and they all need to be reviewed. Yes, indeed. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for getting up early again this morning and um, taking our call and also for your insights and your paper. So just Thanks terrific. very much indeed, Judith. Thanks, Dennis.
And that was Birds with Black Lives Matter. What a what a great song that great is. Great track. Yeah, I saw him with Omar Musa together on a double bill. They, I can't remember which where it was in the city, but uh, yeah, two fabulous men just up there doing it. Great. <laughs> great. Okay, so now we're joined in the studio by Daniel James. Daniel James is a Yorta Yorta man on Wurundjeri land. Correct. Yes. And uh, he's a, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say all these wonderful things. Yeah, no, I'm, no, so, I'm sorry. Don't no, no, let me stop you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he's a freelance writer, a consultant, a community radio broadcaster, and passionate social justice advocate. And that's just for starters. And also, uh, Daniel, you won the Don the Horn Prize in um, 2018 for your essay, Ten More Days, which I found just wonderful. I read on the weekend twice. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and um, it's been described by the judges as a truthful work about a difficult subject, and it takes the reader on an inti- to an intimate place and then asks that they respect the sanctity of that place and the balance between memoir, memoir and intrusion. So... Uh, yeah, and um, people can read it, and we'll put a, post a, a link to it on, oh, on our website. Excellent. I'm still yeah. trying to work out what that actually all means. What that? Yeah, I thought you might. <laughs> isn't it funny when people read your work and then yeah. kind of attribute things to it? And uh, yeah, so yeah, it's, a, it's basically a, um, an essay about intergenerational trauma and um, the evolution of culture. So when they talk about the uh, the intimate places, it's <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> not that type of intimate. It's, it's, it's yeah, uh, yeah, a different talking. type of intimate. <laughs> yes. What What does intimate? Yeah. It's a yeah. lovely word, intimate. You know, I find uh, it's quite evocative that word. But yeah. there's many kinds of intimacy, isn't there? Right. Just, uh, yeah. We can list them off, but we don't have time. No, we don't. You're absolutely <laughs> right. <laughs> we don't. Um, so, but this morning I've invited you in because when I spoke to you, you were really concerned about. Um, the uh, situation of Aboriginal young people on the New Start and youth mm. allowance and, and in remote communities. So, so I'm wondering, do you want to? I'm just curious, how did you sort of find out about the situation, or when did you first encounter it? Well, because I do a, a radio show on another station, I um uh, that looks at you know people on the wrong end of the social justice arc in this country, particularly Aboriginal people in issues. I'm always on the lookout for um you know stories. Um, things that are, that are being underreported a lot of the time, and this is this is one that was definitely being underreported, and it was about the, uh, you know, the effects of the new start allowance on people in remote communities in, in, in particular, and there was a headline in in, in the Canberra Times from uh, based on a submission to a Senate inquiry into the new start allowance that says that that basically said, you know, new new start is Killing people in indigenous remote communities, and I thought, well, that's pretty provocative. A better, yes. have a bit of a look at that. Make sure, sure it's not sensationalist. And so it was based on the research done by a couple of ANU academics, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Markham and Professor John Altman, mm-hmm. and they said, well, you know, they basically discovered that the requirements for people on New Start in remote communities are far more onerous than they are in the city. And because the rate of New Start hasn't been raised in real terms for over 20 years. I mean, we know that everyone on New Start is doing it hard. Yeah, absolutely. But there are particular situations for people in remote communities. Well, one of the one of the requirements in remote communities is that you have to go on work for the dole straight away. 
So in you know non remote areas, you, you, there's a there's a period of I think it's three months. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, where you um, you don't have to, and the new start is seen as a, a transitional, you know, payment. Yes. But what the what their research has found is that in remote communities is actually basically a, a way of life with uh, the majority of Indigenous people in remote areas being on new start having been on new start for uh, five years. Or more. Wow. And, and what's it, like? What kind of work is there in remote communities? I mean, how can people apply for work? Is it available at all? I think a lot of it's um, seasonal, and a lot of it's laborious, and the work is actually, you know, very laborious. But there's also punitive measures. So if you don't make the 20 hours a week, you then get your new start allowance cut, and then you have to pay that back. And so the two Wait, sorry, what do you mean if you don't make your 20 hours a week? So if you're stuck on, if you're stuck because there's a, there's a flood, say you're in Catherine and you can't make it to, you know, yep. the, the, the town centre or you're on sorry business and you can't yeah. make your 20 hours a week, then there are punitive measures that actually cut your allowance that you then have to eventually pay back. So, yes. and so you're entrenching people in poverty and you're punishing them for it. Yeah. And I guess one of the, I mean, the, there's the call to raise the amount of new start, mm. that's for sure. But in, in remote communities, then obviously they should have the same rules as everyone else. I mean, this is really yeah. worrying. Everyone, everyone apart from the government has realised that the new start allowance needs to be, mm. needs to be raised, sorry. And, you know, people like John Howard have called for it to, to be, to be raised. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not going to happen. But no, but even in the Liberal Party, they're not listening to John Howard at Well, the yeah, it's not going to happen until the government gets its vanity surplus, which, yeah. you know, they're aiming for, you know, next year. And until then, people are still going to be languishing on this. And, and, yes. you know, there's a, there's a lot of activism around asylum seekers, but, we'll, which is, of course, really important. But there's a whole bunch of hidden issues in remote communities, and particularly remote Indigenous communities, just that don't get reported in cities like Melbourne. And so one thing that I take it upon myself, and there's a whole bunch of other people that do the same thing, is well, while we have access to microphones like this one, we have access to, to politicians and media outlets, is, well, let's get the reporting up on those issues as well, yes. because there are people that are languishing in, in poverty. There is a heap of research that shows um, if you continue to live in poverty and you live in poverty for a sustained period, it shortens your life expectancy. And that's where the, the headline came from. In the Canberra Times. In the Canberra Times. Yeah. Um, and I actually spoke to John Alton um, about that, the, one of the researchers, and he kind of stepped back from, from that headline a little bit, but... It is, there is research that says, well, if you're entrenched in poverty, your life expectancy is shortened. And if we're in the business of trying to close the gap, which unfortunately is becoming more and more of a sort of a mild blind agenda, then you need to raise the, you know, you need to raise new start. Yes. Because I think, I think the rate for Aboriginal people, particularly in remote communities, is you know five times higher unemployment than than the rest of the population. Yes, and I think you're absolutely right. We don't get the kind of reporting mm. from remote communities or even the bush. I mean, we don't have to go too far out of Melbourne, and then it True. kind of stops. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is, people don't get out there. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We have a whole bunch of um, hidden issues in Australia mm. that just don't get the, the reporting, and, you know, that that's clearly one. Not many people. This wouldn't be on anyone's agenda, Yeah. you know, in, in Melbourne um, or any of the or, big or cities or, the, or any of the big cities. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's the type of thing that uh, I tried to do in some yes. of my goings-on. Yeah, that's great. And so uh, I'm wondering, Daniel... You know, what kind of needs to happen, do you think, here? Because there's an inquiry in, into New Star at the yep. moment, and I know that John Altman has, you know, they put, and um, who's the other author? I've forgotten. Uh, Dr. Markham. No, yeah, they've put a, a submission into that inquiry, and we can put that up on our website. Yeah, yeah, so th- there's a link. Uh, there's, a, there's a link to all the submissions that have been put in. I think there was something like 79 submissions. Yeah. Put in, I think the Australian Institute has called for the for the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just not a lefty sort of, Gabfest either. There's there's a you know submissions from a whole range of, of stakeholders, but yeah. Um, yeah, if you want to you know really be across some of some of those issues, make these things available to yourself because um, these things are happening, and we're kind of in a democracy at the moment. But it's not very representative of <laughs> you know yes. the people, um, um, and it's certainly not representative. And one thing people that have worked in sort of Aboriginal affairs for a long time have always known is that. There's not much of a vote in, you know, fixing Indigenous issues or working with Aboriginal communities or co-designing processes and uh, getting outcomes in that space. So um, it requires relentless activism to, yes. to to try and keep it on the agenda. And one of the cop-outs in recent years is, you know, governments moving to, you know, moving to platitudes instead of changing their attitudes. Yes. So we have a we have the Koori flag now above Parliament House, but for the last two or three years they've been trying to destroy you know sacred trees on Jabarong yes, country. Yes, for sure. Um, we have acknowledgements to country, but what do they mean mm, at yeah. the end of the day? And, and some people even try not to do them. I mean, I think I've read something about that just recently. Yeah, I think they're trying to move away from that, or they're trying to. Do an acknowledgement to servicemen that's and women. One, that's the story I read as yes. well, yeah. which I think has has a place. But I don't think that you know it should be in place of no. or alongside of uh, a welcome or acknowledgement to country. Yeah, it feels like they're trying to roll back and dilute gains that have been made in the past, yep. and that's been, that dilution's been going on for quite a long time, starting with the Northern Territory intervention, but even before then. Yeah, it just seems one step forward, two steps back. Mm. We're seeing that with the Uluru Statement yes, at the moment. Yes, that was heartbreaking. Where you know, Ken White, the Minister for Indigenous Australians, has now formally, well not formally said, but he has announced that he's moving to a legislated response to enshrine yes. the voice, but you're not really enshrining any voice if it's a legislated response because... it was. We want it in the Constitution. Yeah, you want yeah. it in the Constitution. You yeah. don't want it to be scrapped at the whim of any government. Yeah. So I fear that that's dead in the water while we've we've got this government in place, and I even have misgivings about how confident we can be about any sort of acknowledgement in the constitution of you know the first Australians while the, there's such a schism in the debate already. Yes, and so just going back to to now that the new start and the youth allowance, I know people listening of three seven we've got a very politically active audience. Very active. Would be interested in knowing is there anything they can do? Do you think? 
Well, it's, it's, it's corny, but you've just basically got to keep it on the agenda. And so you've got to make sure that your representatives in the parliament are aware and understand that this is an issue that we're all concerned about. So right into your parliamentarians. Yeah, right into your parliamentarians. Keep active on things like social media. Um, this is an issue that affects people everywhere in Australia. It's just mm-hmm. that this issue affects Indigenous people more in remote communities. Yes, yeah. So we will uh, endeavour to... I mean, one thing I've noticed since being in community radio, and you've probably noticed the same in, in your own work, is the way... You know, there's a story and it gets all kinds of attention for a few days, yeah. for about four days. Then it's gone. And there's the next one. So to keep stories alive, I think it's a really important thing that we can do. Absolutely. Yeah. Daniel, thank you so much for coming in today. It's pleasure to be pleasure here. pleasure to have you here. No worries. Yeah. And I recommend your paper. Oh, no, your paper is your essay, 10 More Days, and we will put up on the website. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, Judith. And, and I'll see you around, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yay. Okay, <laughs> thanks. talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories, from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is out. And we were in the studio with Daniel before, and he was just inspired by everything he said. Yeah, the wonderful work he's doing. Yeah. And now we have Julian Merrick. And um, Julian has directed productions such as Angela's Kitchen, Who's Afraid of the Working Class, The Realistic Joneses, and Lamb. Um, And he's going to be speaking to us today about his latest science fiction epic, Control, which is at the Red Stitch Theatre. So, thank you for coming on today, Julian. Oh, thank you for having me, Alice. No worries. Um, Can you just give our listeners just a a brief introduction to what Control is about? Sure. So, um, well, you named the genre. It's a science fiction drama, which is not very common in Mm theatre, you'd have to say. Um, And uh, it's written by, I think of her as a younger playwright, Kezia Warner, who's based here in Melbourne. Uh, It's three acts. One is set in the sort of near future on a rocket going to Mars and has a sort of uh, reality game show format. Um, The second is set 30 years after that, um, and that is back down on Earth 
at a time when people's memories are all collected in a public storage bank mm -hmm. and it has a sort of black mirror feel to it, I'd say, that act. Mm -hmm. And then the third act is set 20 years after that on Mars or New Earth and it involves an AI um, and her programmer. Mm -hmm. And the, the theme of the play overall, I suppose you'd say, is, is really AI and looking at issues of artificial intelligence and indeed what it is to be human. Mm. So that, that just sort of gives you a rough idea of what the narrative bones are. Yeah. And I, I watched this last week, and Judith <laughs> has seen it as well, actually. Um, and it definitely touches on how the hum, what, what the human relationship is with technology. And, and you can see the changes throughout those different three acts that, you've, that you mentioned. Yeah. So can you just give us a little bit more information about how um, control, t control kind of shows these different relationships with technology or AI and if you think mm. that there might be subtle little elements of the future that we can see in this? Yeah, that's uh, an interesting question, isn't it? Because um, mm. every time you pick up the newspaper or, you know, you go online, there's some blag about AI um, and how that's the way we're headed. Um, and uh, people use that phrase um, to sort of encompass the whole load of things, really, from quantum computing to, you know, kind of automatic hoovers that um, clean your house. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but I think, I think within the play, um, as within all plays, um, AI is represented or explored through character. Um, and sort of one of the interesting challenges for the actors playing um, control is, well, what, what does a non-human character look like? Um, uh, and how do you explore, uh, well, I wanted to say a set of feelings, if that's the right mm. thing, but a set of responses that, that aren't necessarily kind of human. Mm. Um, uh, and within one, within Act One of Control, uh, I think AI is really very much just basically there represented by the current technology as we know it, which is, you know, kind of cameras and automatic systems. Within Act Two, AI has a human form. Um, and within Act Three, a human and very sophisticated form. Mm. So that the gap between being human and being something else, whatever that might be, um, is then actively explored in control as a set of philosophical questions rather than as just a technical accomplishment. Mm. I found it, uh, Julian, it's, it's Judith here. I found yeah. it quite amazing the way um, the actor in, in the third scene where the, the actor who plays um, the AI person, um, yeah. I mean, just, just as an actor doing that work, was pretty impressive in how quickly yeah. she had to move, you know, from what, like the person kept reprogramming or yeah. pushing a button and then she has yeah. to go back. I mean, that must have been incredibly challenging for the actor. Um, yes, I, I think there is a bridge between what we might imagine AI to be and um, the resources that we have in the theatre to explore and represent it. Um, and, um, I mean, one of the things that happens to the AI, whose name is Esther in Act 3 of Control, um, is that unlike human beings, <coughs> perhaps, um, she can be reprogrammed mm. so that it's possible to adjust her mood, adjust her memory, 
um, adjust other aspects of her character. And this is, again, actively explored within the play, so you can kind of get a feel for what that's like. Um, and um, those resettings, if you like, are not a million miles away from the resettings that we use um, as actors and directors <laughs> in the theatre when we, we, we say to each other, OK, well, let's try that, but let, let's make it a little bit sadder, or let's try that. I see. That's really quicker. interesting. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I really liked the third scene as well, and it resonated the most with me, I think, and, and the characters that we were just talking about, Esther, the AI, and Isabel, yep. the, the programmer, um, the human, the, the sort of born human programmer, but Esther longs to be human, and, uh, and she kind of brings out that more human and soft side to Isabel. So yeah. that the relationship there between how the, yeah, how the AI actually kind of brings a softer side out of her. Can you talk to us a little bit more about their relationship, just without giving away too much, obviously? Yes, well, I guess it's an intimate one. So you've just, you've said that um, in just what you've described. Mm. Um, it's a softer relationship. I mean, the pattern of the play is act one funny, act two dark, act three a little bit transcendent, I suppose. Um, the relationships between all the three acts is very subtle, um, so that you can't just arrive in act three without having had the arc before of one and two. Mm. Um, but um, when you do arrive in act three, I think, um, you're ready to understand that the relationship between, I'll just call it human and something else, um, is, is, is not necessarily straightforward. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what we yearn for in the, you know, in our lives, um, is not straightforward. And so that when we interact with, again, something else, something that isn't human, um, uh, including AI, um, we are in a complex relationship before we know it. And by complex, I mean one that is full of all sorts of feelings like mm. hope and fear and anger. And I think between Esther and Isabel, something like love. Yeah. Uh, Julie and I found the concept of the Museum of Childhood uh, is yeah. it memories? memories. Yeah, so... Uh, you know, so you don't have to worry about remembering them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, humorous in such a, a dark way. Yeah. I mean, it's, <clears throat> you know, in a, in a way, reality is very rapidly catching up to, um, you know, the conceit of the play. If you think that Kezia um, started developing the play four years ago. Wow. Um, and, um, <clears throat> you know, in that time, in the last four years, um, our capacity to, you know, um, the, uh, electronically and digitally store information has gone up exponentially. Um, within the play, again, the conceit of the play or conceit of the story is that there exist these museums where if you choose to upload um, your memories to those things, memories being your whole electronic trace within the world, mm. every, every, everything that has captured you, everything on your online, every CCTV footage that has your face, once that's in the storage bank, it can't be deleted. And, and I heard um, uh, uh, the ABC um, uh, uh, download program debating this issue just shortly before the election, which is that um, we now have a generation who have been 
you know, as it were, digitally scanned from birth up to their current life. And what is that going to mean, um, you know, as they get older and are essentially different, but they will be held to account for all those things that have happened to them earlier, which perhaps for my life and maybe yours as well, are essentially just human memories and now forgotten. Wow. Um, So there there are some, you know, underneath the surface of the play, um, you know, um, I don't want to say incredibly important, but, but certainly very current issues to do with you know, how we control the past. And, mm. th- and that, I think, is why the play is, to some extent, called control mm. <laughs> and not AI, um, is because AI is a means to control and not the other way around. Yeah. And, and just very quickly, because we, um, we are unfortunately running out of time, but yeah. um, the, the Control is actually a Red Stitch Inc. production as well, isn't it? It is. And what is yeah. the Inc. program? Well, the Inc. program is the new play development program that Red Stitch run. Um, and they've been running it, I think, since 2013. And it gives opportunities for local playwrights, Australian playwrights, to develop work and get it into the program. So it is quite remarkable. I think I've done three Australian plays with Red Stitch that have come out of that program. Um, and each one has, has been... You know, quite, quite different, and uh, I'm pleased to say quite successful. Amazing. Well, thank you, Julian, so much for joining us today. It's lovely been talking to you. Um, have a lovely Monday. Thank you very much, and a pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you. Uh, and that was Julian Merrick, um, and talking about the play that he has directed, and it's on from the 10th of October to the 3rd of November at the Red Stitch Theatre. And that's called Control. And we both recommend it. We both recommend it. Yeah, we it. loved it. Mm. And we actually are doing a special recording today, 11 a.m., Black Block, and it will be live from the iMark. And um, there's about 100 or so people in front of the convention center on South Bank at the moment. This and is the annual International Mining and Resources Conference. Yes. And uh, there are visitors uh, unexpected, yeah. blockading. And there's about 15, 50 to 60 cops setting up already. Yes. And that, yeah, stay tuned for 3CR to update you on all of that. But that's 11 a.m. Black Box live from 3CR. Thank you so much for our guests and for joining us today. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. Thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR.